Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm not going to let you away with that. Get away with that. Uh, you got. You got to say it louder. Good morning, everybody. All right. So, um, as you know by looking at me, um, I'm not Jamie Mosley. Although we could be mistaken for sharing the same hairstylist, uh, probably not the same exercise consultant, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but it is a privilege to share God's Word with you this morning. Um, if you would, take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. And Jamie said that I had an hour and five minutes. So I'm only going to take about half of that though. So. Book of the Hebrews chapter 13. Starting in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray or led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the one that is to come. And may God bless the reading of his word. As we get into this, and I hope you want to dig in with me. Uh, I didn't bring a shovel, but spiritually speaking, I hope you dig in with me with this. And as we examine a very small portion of a very uh, somewhat of a deep book theologically, I want you to reflect with me on the historical occasion that was happening that provoked the book of Hebrews to be written to its hearers. 2,000 years ago, the author of the book of Hebrews found himself dealing with several situations uh, with the Jewish Christians as well as Gentiles um, who had been drawn to the Jewish practices and ordinances of the time, among which were social situations of uh, imprisonment that were going on at this time also. There were all types of persecutions. Uh, there were theological situations with false teachers. And who through these experiences, they wanted to revert back to the Jewish sacrifices, to the Jewish practices and to their rituals the writer of this book is making an attempt to persuade the recipients of the book of hebrews that christ is the most superior to any angel or prophet of an old testament institution rather than jewish christians or jewish leaning gentiles leaving and abandoning uh, such a great salvation as the writer of hebrews says the readers of this book are to continue to embrace the faith, to rest in the completed redemptive work of Christ, and to encourage his readers 
to preserve in the faith by God's grace. I want to say this to you this morning, if you don't hear anything else that I say to you. That the same heart of faith that brings us to salvation in Christ is the same heart of faith that causes us to continue on in faith by God's grace to follow Christ. Until the end, folks. Either until we pass into glory or until the Lord returns. So, in this Christian experience, if there is a faith that fizzles out before the finish, it is certain to have been flawed from the first. I never, that is something I never thought I would say in your hearing or mind that I would quote Adrian Rogers. That's who said that. If there is a faith found that is drifting, that is not enduring, that is not resting in, is not relying upon the finished redemptive work of our only God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's not genuine, and it's not secure, and it's not sincere. Many times that uh, we have this concept, especially in the American church, that somehow it is that we get saved by God's grace, but we keep ourselves sanctified or keep ourselves saved by performance. And that is not the case. Sometimes uh, it is thought of, and it's in our Christian culture here in America, that we get saved, that we are born again, that we are uh, made right with God, that we're justified before Him. And somehow as us, we can just drift as if we're on this nice, calm, peaceful sea or lake. And I want to correct that if that's your thinking this morning. The Christian life is not one of calmness and peace. It is dangerous. The Christian life you could think more of as a river. And be careful if you drift in this Christian life. It's because it's a river that flows and it is moving. And you be careful lest you drift and you find yourselves that we drift ourselves right into hell. It is not one that we relax in. It is this mentality, and you probably have heard me say this before. It is a mentality my grandfather described that when in World War II, that the sacrifices that were made for the war effort, that they did not do certain things, they did not go places where it required more gasoline, that they did not use things or consume them the same way that they did in times where it was not a war. It was this wartime mentality that we're at war and we're living life differently because we're at war and this is not a peacetime that we're in a battle. Um, this writer of Hebrews is also going to point us to this thing that in this earthly life, in material things, that security is a myth and it does not exist in earthly treasures or in earthly material belongings. God is saying in our text today, and in the context of the book of Hebrews, that if you're going to come to Him for salvation, and He's saying it like this, if you're going to come to Me, I want you to bring it all to Me, all of yourself to Me. I want you to bring everything to Me. I want you to stop half-stepping. I want you to stop being halfway committed. I want you to stop drifting, and I want you to find your endurance and your rest and the one that is higher than any angel. Even though the angels and all their angelic abilities. Christ Jesus is higher than that angel. Or any angel. 
He's greater than any earthly prophet. As great as the prophets were and what they said to us and what they said to the Hebrews in the past. He's greater than any prophet. He's greater than any earthly priest. As much as the priest would go into the tabernacle or the tent of meeting and make sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel. He's greater than them. And this is why. If you look at these priests that they would go in and they would also have to sacrifice for themselves because they themselves were imperfect and sinful. So they'd have to offer sacrifices on themselves uh, in order to represent the people to God. And you are to come as well yourself, not in part, to the one that has entered once for all the holy place. This is not where Jesus keeps re-entering for us. This is a redemptive act that was done one time for all. And he does so without spot, without blemish, and thus securing eternal redemption for all, particularly those that believe, so that we could serve the living God with a pure conscience from our dead works. Now I want to make a quick note here before we go any further. And the note is, uh, it's relevant in our culture, it's relevant in the world, but particularly our culture. And the note is to this, to biblical interpretation. And it is very important to remember when reading this book, as well as any book in Scripture, or in the book of Hebrews, particularly as pertains to today, that these holy inspired Scriptures were not written to you. They were not, were not written to you. They, however, were written for you. That makes all the difference in when we look into the Scriptures and make application to our lives. So that brings us to a point. How do you know if the person speaking or representing God is saying what God has said? How do you know when a preacher or a teacher or a person on TV is speaking the truth of God's Word? How do you know that you can trust what they're saying? Well, here's a small glimpse into it. And it's not the only way, but it's a great way. And it's very simple. If what's coming out of the preacher's mouth is what's coming out of God's mouth, you better listen to that preacher. If what's coming out of the preacher's mouth, however, is not what's coming out of God's mouth, then don't listen to that preacher. This is a serious... uh, A serious thing that was so serious in the Old Testament that when prophets would prophesize and misrepresent God and misspeak and say something that God did not say, that it was required of them their lives. Um, A few years ago, perhaps more than a few years ago, I was up late one night and watching TV and watching a television evangelist. Um, And I don't do that anymore because my blood pressure gets high and I've been, I've even, I think I even threw things at my TV before when they would say things that are not what God is saying. So this prophet, this self-proclaimed prophet said he was prophesying and holding his hands out and he was talking about how this, these events would come to place and the host preacher of the television ministry that was on said, well, time out, wait a minute, we gotta, we got to qualify this, that sometimes that when he is prophesied, we have learned that he can only prophesize in certain regions of the country. Because he prophesied one time and he was wrong. And that, I think that may have been one time I threw something at the TV and it was probably in the AM hours of the morning. 
is that I said, no, that's not right. If you prophesize and it did not come about, you're not a prophet of God. And so that is easily accepted in our culture today, and it should not. It should not be palatable to listen to that, to even entertain that. So here comes another question. How many interpretations of the Bible are there? Not translations, interpretations. We could go through every row right here and we could come up with probably, in fact, some of you may have more than one you can share with us. Not just one per person, but possibly two or three per person, a couple dozen. Um, we say to ourselves in our culture, well, you interpret what the scripture says your way, I interpret it my way, it's tomato, tomato. We make different applications with it and I want to point you to this. When we do that, you get what we have in our culture today. You have horrific things happening. You have horrific things happening in the church. You have horrific things happening in the culture. And you lead to what I call, and bear with me with this, let me follow through with this. You lead to multiple heads on the same body. You say, say what? Multiple heads on the same body. When I grew up, the vernacular was when someone said something that didn't make sense, we would say something like, what you talking about, Willis? In the words of Gary Coleman. Let me explain and bear with me. Have you ever seen, uh, depending on when you grew up, have you ever seen uh, horror movies, horror films, some of those, the, the creature in the film or the entity or whatever you want to call it, the villain, sometimes they do have two heads and they're scaring everybody and um, everybody's uh, threatened by this person and, and you get horror going on not only in the creature's life but everybody's life in the film. And oftentimes it's because it's a creature with two heads on one body. And if you grew up like I did, I grew up in a rural area where you're driving down the road, minding your own business and a car's coming your way and you're going this way. And it's coming at you and it looks like two heads are behind the steering wheel. And, you, and you're thinking, what, what's going on? And as they get closer, you realize it's not two heads, it's two sweethearts sitting beside each other, beside going down the road because they like each other that much. To have two heads on the same body, according to the Bible, and according to James and according to um, Elijah, is to be double-minded. If you ever participated in a workplace environment, this even goes on uh, in the home, that if there's not a head in the home, if there's not a head in a workplace environment, that it leads to double-mindedness. And double-mindedness leads to horrific lives. It's where you are hovering between two opinions. If you remember the story of Elijah when he gathered all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and confronted Israel and said, you gather your God's, your God's prophets and I'm going to get up there too. And he told Israel as they gathered Baal's prophets, he said this, he said that if your God Baal is real, then follow him. If the God of Israel is real, then follow him. And he says this, he pointed this question to him. How long will you hover between two opinions? How long will you both have what others say about God, and how long will you stick to what God says about God? And so that's very important as we look in the Scripture today. 
And I want to challenge you to try this if you've not. Here's another thought in interpreting Scripture. As you return to work next week, I assume some of you have been off. And if you've not experienced this already, um, you ever got an email from someone, a superior person or a position in the office that says, sends out a memo and says, this is a new policy. This is what's going to happen. I want everybody to read this. In fact, respond back saying you read this so I know that you read it and you understand. And you get with your coworkers and you, and you, get, you compare what he said and says, well, I think he said this. I think he said that. And you come up with your own means of interpreting what was said when actually the question should be said, what was, you could go to your boss and say, what was your original intent in saying this? Now, could you imagine, and you may have experienced this, that your manager, your superior, your boss, what have you, gives you instructions in this way, and you, and you go to him and say, well, I, I really didn't get it. Um, it was unclear what you said. Could you imagine his outrage? He would say something along these lines as, if you just come to me, I could clarify what my original intent was and what I said. And so it is as we study the scripture. The goal of the writer of Hebrews to this audience is this, that they would have a clear understanding that they get God's, God right about God's purpose in the ultimate sacrifice of Christ and remain faithful to Christ. And not to return to an old covenant ways, but that they honor the faith of the saints of the Old Testament by their faithfulness. And you see that in Hebrews chapter 11. These old covenant saints died in faith looking forward to this coming Messiah. And the book of Hebrews gives light to us how Christ fulfills this redemptive history that we have in the Old Testament. So the first thing I want you to see is this, the significance of what we just read in our hearing of out being outside the gate. So I want you to go back with me, way back, and see the significance of this area that we're discussing this morning. So I'm going to help you out. What is the significance of outside the gate? Well, think about this. Think about when Moses, when he is on Sinai, and he comes down to find all the children of Israel They've got impatient. They made their own gods. They made a golden calf and they were worshiping him. And in his frustration with them, he breaks the commandments that God gives. And you'll notice as you follow that story that Moses would set up this tent of meeting. And it's important to note that when he set up this tent of meeting, he didn't set it up inside the camp, that he went outside the camp with it. Because inside the camp was defiled from the worship of false gods. Inside the camp is where the children of Israel were sinning against God. And Moses would enter this tent, this tent of meeting. And as he'd entered, a pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance and remain while Moses met with God. And likewise, if anyone desired to inquire of the Lord in that camp, they could go outside to the tent of meeting outside the camp and do so. The fact that Moses set up this meeting place outside the camp was a clear result that Israel had broken fellowship with God. And you remember what happened. That Moses would meet with them 
And Moses would not come out until he was through meeting with God. But also in this tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant was there. There were holy utensils there. There were furnishings that were instructed to be in there at this temporary tent of meeting, this tabernacle, until the time of a permanent place of worship was built. This is also where sacrifices were made on behalf of the people of Israel. Of bulls and goats and rams that would temporarily cleanse the guilt of God's people and the guilt of their sin. Moses set up this tent of meeting outside the gate away from the defilement of the people of Israel inside the camp. Now we see this that it's important because that was a temporary place of atonement. And we see the importance as the writer writes to his hearers in Hebrews that it finally there would become a permanent place or permanent and final altar of atonement. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 13 verses 10 through 11. We have an altar from which those who served the tent had no right to eat. For the body of those whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. There are also implications for inside, or being outside the gate, rather. We saw the significance that holiness before God was not tied directly to a geographical location. So what are the implications of being outside the gate? In Jesus' day... You go outside the gate, you go to a place where there are horrific things happening. There are horrible, horrible events happening outside the gate. Hostility would await you outside the gate and outside this camp. If you go outside the gate, you can get yourself crucified outside the gate. Condemnation occurred outside the camp. Suffering went on outside the gate. Death happened Outside the gate. Jesus was crucified himself. Outside the gate. Outside the camp. At a place where Old Testament rituals. Were not occurring at that time. By being crucified outside the gate. Jesus was establishing. This final altar. This final altar. To make a sacrifice of himself. Once for all. Because the the altar. Located in the temple was not suitable for a final and permanent sacrifice. That's why it was outside the gate. Jesus left the holy city of Jerusalem to go out into what was considered an unclean wilderness, and that is the offering that he offered of the sacrifice of himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I want to read for you a passage that points to this, but when Christ was appeared as a appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come and through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of creation he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by the means of his own blood securing eternal redemption and you see that this work that was pointed to for all this time in the Old Testament is being fulfilled now I want to make a point here is I've set in with, and these are Bible-believing Christians that I've set in Bible studies with or discussions. And we've discussed this, and, and it's been referenced, and this is not recent or any time in my recent memory, but it has occurred in the past. 
is that this is a statement that's made. Is Well, they, in the Old Testament, people got saved by obeying God's law and the sacrifices. And in the New Testament, people get saved by believing in Jesus and trusting him for salvation. And that's not accurate. People were saved, were made right with God the same way in the Old Testament they were in the New Testament. Their faith was placed in a coming Messiah in the Old Testament that one day would take away the, their sins of the world, a permanent atonement, a final altar of atonement. And the writer of Hebrews points us out that these blood, the blood of goats and bulls and rams was only temporary until Messiah would come. Now, we have the benefit of looking back and seeing and knowing his name was Jesus, or as we say in our English language, but at that time, they did not know his name, but he was foretold to come. Now, we'll say this, that be careful that that was a means of sanctification for them, but it was a temporary means until Messiah came. Now, I want you to also know this, that to go outside the great requires both endurance I want you to look with me in Hebrews chapter 10 in verses starting in verses 32 where it says but recall the former days when after you were enlightened you entered a hard struggle with suffering sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and look what it says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. Now, can you picture this, that in these times... Um, as you may well know, that if you were in prison at these times, that you did not eat, that you did not have sustenance, that you did not have provision unless someone that cared for you and loved you or liked you brought that to you. As these Hebrew believers, as they're reading this, these are people who were publicly identified with Christ. In such a way so that, as the writer of Hebrews points out, that when people were in prison, they would take things to them. They would take needs. They would take food, water, clothing to them. And it would be such in a way that, like you this morning, if on your way to church, and, I'm not, and I don't know the officer's name down here, but say he's writing down your license plate as you drive by him and he's identifying you, you're going to Redeemer Church. And he's calling in to someone to say, hey, yes, I've identified them. They're going to church. They're definitely Christians or they profess to be. And we need to pay them a visit. So while you're at church this morning, you've been marked out. And someone's at your home where there's a plundering of your property. And it may not even be a plundering. It may be a confiscation. And that was the context of what was going on in Hebrews is that there were those who were being uh, under reproach and suffering because simply by identifying with other Christians and with Christ. So he writes to them, you have a need for endurance. 
You have a need for endurance so that you don't shrink back. You have a need for endurance so that you don't stop what you're doing, so that you don't stop leaning into this and that you don't walk away. You have need for endurance. In our culture today, and sadly in the Christian church, when we come upon obstacles, when we come upon barriers, we give up too easily. When confronted with sin, we instead of leaning into it and wanting to correct that, to be made right, to be restored, to be repentant of, we run away from that. If we could be like Old Testament Christians or even any biblical Christians that we read about, or even if it, even me as a man, if I could be like or Esther, who said that even though it's against the law to go into the king, I will. That we would lean into this Christian life instead of running from it. So, to go outside the gate also took confidence. As we saw in verse 35 of chapter 10. That it took confidence, which leads to great reward. So here's... Here's the context or the approach that I want you to see this morning. If you don't see anything else. I want you to look back over in Hebrews chapter 13 with me. The writer of Hebrews says to his readers, starting in verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And look here in verse 13, there is an invitation. And not only is it an invitation for these Hebrew listeners, it's an invitation for you. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The charge, the invitation is this, that go to him. Go to him. It said of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated uh, with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It also says that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We just read that in Hebrews chapter 11. That he's looking for the reward. Just as in Jerusalem. And all of its religious systems. Of that city. That city could not satisfy. The eternal needs of God's people. That earthly city. We're not to make ourselves at home. In this earthly pilgrimage. If you are like me. My children at Christmas. Uh, received a lot of presents, a lot of gifts, and I'm very grateful for that. I received a lot of presents, a lot of gifts, and I'm very grateful for that. But here's my, my take on that, and this is where I cringe. It's when my children get those gifts and those presents that it's in direct conflict with what I teach them. I teach them that they are pilgrims here and sojourners, and this is not their home. 
And those gifts teach them to make this their home. And it is not their home. And so there's that tension, that conflict there. Of grasping two material things that for them that is security at their age. And there is no earthly security to be found here while we're on this earth as far as in material possessions or gains. It's not even in my job. If you haven't known, and I hope you do starting today, that God alone is your source. God alone is your source. My job is not my source. My family is not my source of sustenance. God alone is my source. And God alone being my source, He's not dependent upon what you think He's dependent upon to provide for you. God's not dependent on the Dow Jones being sky high like it is now. He's not dependent on planes flying in the sky and not running into skyscrapers. God is independent. And we are dependent. God alone is your source. And as God alone is my source, I'm not looking for, or I don't want to look for any earthly treasure that will satisfy me other than Him. Just as the Old Testament saints sought after a city that was to come, the writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. We have no lasting sustenance here in any material uh, gain that we have here. And furthermore, this, that if we look to the Apostle Paul who wrote in Philippians, when he boasted in his pedigree of all of his accomplishments, when he said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, when he circumcised the eighth day, that when he, as far as knowledge, he was above many, above all. When he gets to the end of bragging on his pedigree, he says something to this sort. He says that above all this, these things are done compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. They're done. I don't know about you, but I do daydream, but I don't sit around daydreaming about dumb. In fact, when I sit around daydreaming about my accomplishments, when I have that fleeting thought, when I think about any human ability I have, I say to myself, I said, this, this is a manure thought. You shouldn't be thinking about manure. Apostle Paul went on to say this. That he puts no confidence in his flesh. That is this. That he puts no confidence in his human ability to pull off spiritual goals. Absolutely none. And I say this to myself. And I say this to you, my fellow elders as we seek to lead this church. Is that we are to put no confidence in our human ability to pull off spiritual goals. Well, according to our text in the book of Hebrews, there is a mindset to have to live outside the gate. And you may be thinking what I said, and you think that, you know, that sounds nice. It sounds good. It sounds like a good Sunday school lesson. It sounds, it sounds really good for these Hebrews, but what you're saying, it just does not sound practical for me. It doesn't sound practical. It doesn't sound like 
like this is real, like I can connect this with my life. And I want to say to you this. That if you're going to live outside the camp and go to a place where and share in Christ's reproach, you've done run out of practical. And it takes getting radical. It takes getting radical and having a radical approach to obedience to God. It takes having a radical approach to suffering. And while you suffer, realize this, that there are people watching you. There are people who do not know God who are watching you who are seeing how you embrace that. And you still may be saying, well, this it sounds like you're talking about this heavenly mindset that makes me so heavenly minded that if I'm that heavenly minded, I will not be any earthly good. And I want to say to you this, that according to the book of Hebrews, only those who are that heavenly minded are any earthly good. It's this, it's risk. When you go outside and you suffer and bear the reproach of Christ, there's risk to that. To be identified as someone who follows Him faithfully, there's risk. And I want to say to you, don't be afraid to take that risk. And if you're still having doubts, I want to say this also. And this is a Sunday school answer. Is that you may be saying, well, I, I, I still hear you. It's, it sounds really good what you're saying, but I just don't see how I can do this. And I want to say this. Then how, how can you do this? You can do this by, the, by, by this. Is that Christ lives in me. I cannot live in such a way that will embrace suffering, that will bear reproach, that will embrace a sacrificial life, a life of risk. And the answer is yes, you can, because Christ lives in you. When you have exhausted all earthly ways to be pleasing to God, you've done run out of practical. And it's time to get radical. When you strived against sin and you're still defeated, because it's habitual. You've done run out of practical. When you keep saying that when all the right circumstances will align in your life. that When that happens you will make better efforts for service to God. You've done run out of practical. And it's time to get radical. It's time for our radical, raw, dogged approach to obedience to Christ our Lord. There and then there is this. Is that there's only one life soon will be passed. Only one life soon will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. Will you please pray with me? Lord, I do indeed thank you that... Thank you for Christ that suffered and died. Not only did he suffer and die, but he lives forevermore. That he's a living Savior. And that, yes, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he's the same in creation, the same in redemption, 
and the same in intercession. And I thank you. I pray as we go into this new year that you would cause us to live a life that would joyfully embrace suffering, that would be not ashamed of the gospel or the name of Christ, and that we would take risk that would cause us to glorify him. I pray this for Jesus' sake.